Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, and reading again verse 8. Daniel 1, reading verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. In his book, Brave by Faith, Alistair Begg says this, A dead fish flows with the current. It takes a live fish to swim against the stream. A dead fish flows with the current. It takes a live fish to swim against the stream. And in the same way, someone who is alive to God, someone in whom God's life-giving spirit is dwelling, will go against the flow of popular public opinion. They will swim against the steady stream of secularism. Meanwhile, the person who is dead to God will simply be carried along. This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series entitled Going Against the Flow, where we'll be looking at the life of this man called Daniel from Daniel chapters 1 to 6. Today we're studying the opening chapter of the, the book under three headings. A sovereign providence, a strong persuasion, and then a saint's preservation. A strong sovereign providence, a strong persuasion, a saint's preservation. First, a sovereign providence. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Here the author focuses on the Lord's control over the political situation in Babylon. The Lord's control over the political situation in Babylon. In verse 1, the author begins by drawing our attention to the historical perspective. He starts by introducing us to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Uh, He came to the throne of Judah in 609 BC following the death of his godly father Josiah at the hand of the Egyptians and their king Pharaoh Necho. Now unlike his father, Jehoiakim was a wicked and godless man. A man who rejected the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. As a king, his power was far lesser than that of the previous Judean kings since Judah had been vastly reduced to the status of a vassal state of Egypt. And the author goes on to introduce us to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. His father, Nabopolassar, founded the Neo-Babylonian Empire in 625 BC. In 605 BC, he was succeeded by his ambitious, adventurous son, Nebuchadnezzar. And the author tells us that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish. And with the Egyptians out of the way, the Babylonians now had free reign, free access to go after all the vassal states of Egypt. And that same year, 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar set his sights on Judah, on Jerusalem, and on Jehoiakim. We move from the historical perspective to the theological perspective in verse 2. The author tells us what the Lord did. We read that he gave, he delivered, he handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. We also read that he gave, he delivered, he handed some of the vessels from his own house, the Jerusalem temple, 
into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And the author goes on to tell us what Nebuchadnezzar did. He brought the vessels of the house of God to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And the author emphasizes this by saying that he placed these vessels in the treasury of his God. Now that's significant. The Babylonian historians would have attributed Nebuchadnezzar's victory to Nebuchadnezzar's power. The Babylonian priests would have attributed Nebuchadnezzar's victory to his gods. But the biblical author attributes Nebuchadnezzar's victory and Jehoiakim's defeat to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with a declaration of God's providence. A declaration of God's providence. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 1. Jerusalem and her king are conquered by the king of Babylon and the temple vessels are carried away to Babylon. And the reason why this happens is because the Lord has given them into the hand of the king of Babylon. The Lord's hand, the Lord's providence... The Lord's sovereign control is behind everything that is unfolding here in Daniel chapter 1. And that's important for us to reflect on. These verses, friends, remind us that the Lord, the God of the Bible, is sovereign. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the God who reigns over all the world's affairs. From natural disasters to geopolitical events. He is the God who directs the whole course of history. Where he wills, when he wills, how he wills. Every crisis, every calamity, every catastrophe, no matter how great, is under his sovereign direction. Listen to these words from John Piper. Every tiny popping bubble in the foam at the new top of a newly poured can of Coke, every floating dust mote which you can only see in the early morning bedroom beam of light, every tip of every stalk of grain stretching across the endless Nebraska plains, all of them, with all their slightest movements, specifically governed by God. There is nothing and there is no one. No matter how small or great it is. That falls outside the control of this God. And sometimes friends knowing that he is on the throne. And reigning with all authority. Is the only thing that holds us together. And that keeps us going. I know that many of you could give your amen to this. You could give your assent to this. You, you see things happening in the world. Or things come into your life. And were it not for your belief in the absolute sovereignty of God, you know that you would fall apart. You know, I even think back to what happened to our congregation last month. We, we spent two years, maybe more, working on a planning application for building a church. And it gets rejected by at the planning board meeting. And you know, if I didn't believe that God is absolutely sovereign, if I didn't believe that he is sovereign over our deacon's court, sovereign over our congregation, and sovereign over this council, I would fall apart. And I hope, friend, that you feel the same, and you know the same. 
Today, friends, on this first Sunday of 2024, let's fix our eyes on the God who is reigning. Let's fix our eyes on the God who is ruling. Let's fix our eyes on the God of providence. You know, I think what we need as a congregation over this coming year is simply a bigger view of God. And I say that not to attack anyone in particular. I say it for myself. I say it for every person in this building. And I say it for us as a whole. We need a bigger view of God. A sovereign providence. Second, a strong persuasion. Verses 3 to 16. Where the author focuses now on Daniel's commitment to the Lord in Babylon. Daniel's commitment to the Lord in Babylon. Verses 3 to 5, we see the reprogramming. Nebuchadnezzar had a plan. He wanted to assert his authority over his far-flung and expanding empire. And the best way of doing this was by weaning his subjects away from their gods and winning them over to his gods. Moulding their minds to think in a Babylonian way. And so we see Nebuchadnezzar's program. Look at verses 3 to 5. His program involved selection. He commands Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the men of Israel, some of the Judeans whom he had recently conquered. They were to be of the royal family and of the nobility. They were to be youths, young enough to be influenced and indoctrinated. They were to be without blemish and of good appearance. They were to be skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, competent to stand in the king's palace. His program also involved education. These young Jewish men were to be taught the literature of the Chaldeans, the history of Babylon, the religion of Babylon, the politics of Babylon. They were also to be taught the language of the Chaldeans. Once again, quoting Alistair Begg, what you read and how you think changes who you are. And that was the aim with these youngsters. Every powerful state seeks to educate its people and especially its children to share its view of the world, its priorities, its definitions of right and wrong and what is acceptable and unacceptable. So did Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's program also involved provision. These young Jewish men were to receive the very best diet that Babylon had to offer. The king personally assigned them a portion of the food that he ate and the wine that he drank on a daily basis. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar's program involved time. The training program didn't last for a few hours or a few days or a few weeks or even a few months. It lasted three years. For three years, these young men in their early teens would be immersed and indoctrinated and influenced to live and think in a Babylonian way. They would eat, they would sleep, they would drink a whole new Babylonian worldview. And at the end of these three years, they would be reprogrammed so that they could stand in the king's presence, serve in the king's palace. We move, though, from the reprogramming to the resolution. Look at verses 6 to 16. We see the people, verses 6 and 7. The author suddenly introduces us to four men who came from the tribe of Judah and bore distinctly Jewish names. We have Daniel, whose name meant God is my judge. We have Hananiah, whose name meant the Lord has been gracious. We have Mishael, whose name meant who is what God is. 
And we have Azariah, whose name meant the Lord has helped. And the chief of the eunuchs replaces their Jewish names with Babylonian ones. Daniel's renamed Belshazzar, which means may Bel, a Babylonian god, help him, protect his life. Hananiah's renamed Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, another Babylonian god. Mishael is renamed Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah is renamed Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. Their original names spoke of Judah's god, Israel's god. Their new names spoke of Babylon's gods. And having seen the people, we can see the persuasion. Look at verse 8. The author tells us that Daniel had resolved, determined, set it on his heart that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food or the king's wine. It's important to remember that the food and the wine that came from the king's table had previously been offered as an act of worship in the Babylonian temples. In eating such food or drinking such wine, Daniel would have been indirectly participating in the worship of Babylon's gods and rejecting the God of Israel. So Daniel resolves, determines, sets it on his heart that he won't do this. And having seen the persuasion, we can see the politeness. Look at verse 8. Daniel approaches the chief of the eunuchs and asks that he be allowed not to defile himself by eating the king's food. Now friends, it's important to note the incredible politeness of Daniel here. He doesn't throw a religious temper tantrum. Doesn't start shouting and screaming about Babylon's insensitivity and heavy-handedness. He doesn't set up a social media campaign. He doesn't try to raise a crowd or rabble to shout about how bad Babylon is. No. Instead, he respectfully and he politely asks permission not to be forced to defile himself in this way. Having seen the politeness, we can see the proposal. Look at verses 9 to 13. The author tells us that God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. The chief of the eunuchs listens to what Daniel has to say, but he then tells him that what he's asking for is bordering on the impossible. If the king were to see Daniel in a worse condition than all the other youths enrolled in the programme, the chief of the eunuchs' head, his life, would be in danger. So Daniel comes up with a proposal. He doesn't argue the point with the chief of the eunuchs. He simply goes to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned to him and his three companions. And he asks him to test them over a ten day period. Give them only vegetables to eat, water to drink. And he says that at the end of the ten days he can observe their appearance compared with the others on the programme. And then deal with them accordingly. Having seen the proposal, we can see the proof. Look at verses 14 to 16. The steward listens to Daniel. And he allows Daniel and his companions to be tested in this way. At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his companions are seen to be better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all who are eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. And so the steward removes the assigned food and gives them only vegetables and water. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted 
not just with the declaration of God's providence, but also the decision of God's people. The decision of God's people. That's what we see here in Daniel 1. Daniel is willing, now listen to this, he is willing to tolerate the Babylonian education system and all its threats to his own biblical worldview. He is even willing to allow his name to be changed so that he no longer bears a name that points to Israel's God but to the Babylonian gods. But he finds it intolerable when his own relationship, his own commitment, his own worship of the Lord comes under attack. He was a man who had decided and determined in his heart to stand firm and go against the flow of popular public opinion when it came to following the Lord. And that's worth our attention today. At this time of year, many of us come up with New Year resolutions. Many which probably don't even last until February. In 1722, a young man, 19 years old, by the name of Jonathan Edwards, drew up a list of 70 resolutions that he would refer to throughout the rest of his life. The opening resolution reads as follows. Resolved. I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure for as long as I live. In a later resolution he says this, Resolved never to do anything, whether physically or spiritually, except what glorifies God. In fact, I resolve not only to this commitment, but I resolve not even to grieve and gripe about these things if I can avoid it. And later still, he says this, resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if I expected it would not be more than an hour before I would hear the last trumpet sound, the return of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards was a man who, like Daniel, had decided and determined in his heart to commit himself to God and living for God's glory. Jonathan Edwards was a man who could say with the hymn writer, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow, no turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And so friend, on this first Sunday of 2024, I want to ask Have you decided to follow this Jesus? Have you decided to follow this Lord? Even if it means going against the flow of popular public opinion. Even if it means going against the steady stream of secularism. Can I ask you, friend, will 2024 be the year when Jesus has the primary focus, the preeminent focus, the prime focus in your life? And I'm saying that not just to those of you who may not be professing Christians, but I am saying it to those of us who are professing Christians. Will this be the year when people look at the Christians of the High Free Church and see them on Sundays and see them on Tuesdays and see them on Thursdays and see them in their daily work and see them in their schools and see them in the co-op and say, you know what, these people have Jesus as the main focus. 
These people have decided that there will be no turning back when it comes to following Jesus. A strong persuasion. And then third, we have a saint's preservation. Look at verses 17 to 21. Where the author focuses now on the Lord's care of his servant in Babylon. The Lord's care of his servant in Babylon. Verses 17 to 20, we see the presentation. We can start by looking at the equipping. Look at verse 17. Verse 2, we read about God giving Jehoiakim into the hand of the king of Babylon. Verse 9, we read about God giving Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now we read about God giving learning and skills in all literature and wisdom to Daniel and his three companions. And in addition to this, he gives Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. You know, these men had shown themselves faithful to God in Babylon. And he rewards them. And he rewards them not by releasing them from Babylon. He rewards them not by returning them to their homeland. He rewards them by equipping them for service in Babylon. And having seen the equipping, we can see the examination. Look at verses 18 and 19. The author tells us that at the end of the allotted time, the king commanded that those enrolled in his program be brought before him. And he proceeds to speak with them. And after doing so, he finds that no one is quite like Daniel and his companions. And so these men, we need, stood before the king. They entered into the king's service. They were, they were promoted. And having seen the examination, we see the estimation. Look at verse 20. The author tells us that the king would inquire about matters of wisdom and understanding with Daniel and his companions. And he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters of Babylon. Daniel and his friends surpassed any other man in the king's estimation. Well, we move from the presentation to the preservation. Look at verse 21. The chapter now closes by highlighting that Daniel was in Babylon till the first year of King Cyrus. Now that comment shouldn't be overlooked. After Nebuchadnezzar, there were five other Babylonian kings. Evil Merodach, Nereglesser, Labashi Marduk, Nabonidus, and Belteshazzar. And then in 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire fell to King Cyrus of Persia. And Daniel's still standing. He's depicted as a man who outlasted and outlived Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty Babylonian empire. He's a man whom the Lord sustained. A man whom the Lord preserved. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted not just with the declaration of God's providence, not just with the decision of God's people, but also the durability of God's pilgrims. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is presented here as being a faithful servant of the Lord, and he's a faithful servant of the Lord in Babylon, a place that was indifferent to God at best, 
hostile to God at worst. And Daniel's presented as being a man who outlasted Babylon and her kings. There is a durability in Daniel. And that's important for us to reflect on. Dale Ralph Davis comments on verse 21 and he says this. I have a hunch that this text is more than a statement about Daniel. The text is a sort of parable. As if to say kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall and God's people go on. Davis goes on to write this. In verse 21, Babylon, the hairy chested macho brute of the world, has dropped with a thud into the mausoleum of history, while fragile Daniel, servant of the Most High God, is still on his feet. And that, friends, is well worth remembering. The Lord's people might not seem impressive by the world's standards. And the Lord's church might often seem very weak and very powerless by the world's standards. But the Lord's servants will outlive and they will outendure every kingdom, every empire, every superpower of this world. The 19th century evangelist Dwight Moody once said, Someday you will read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be far more alive than I am now. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1855. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit shall live forever. And so, friends, on this first Sunday of 2024, let's fix our minds... And fix our hearts on the fact that for each and every one of Jesus' people, there is this glorious promise that when the very last kingdom of this world has fallen, when the very last empire of this world has fallen, when the very last superpower of this world has fallen, when there will be no more talk of America, no more talk of China, No more talk of Russia and certainly no more talk of Great Britain. They will still be standing on the great resurrection morning. Isn't that a thought? Hitler won't be standing on the resurrection morning. Nebuchadnezzar most likely won't be standing on the resurrection morning. Many other world leaders won't be standing on the resurrection morning. But the Lord's people, frail, fragile, but faithful saints in a hostile or indifferent world, will still be standing as saints' preservation.